Well, if you would, please turn in your Bibles with me to Psalm 126. Psalm 126. This morning, we're continuing our series in the Songs of Ascent, and we'll be looking at Psalm 126 and Psalm 127. How many of you have ever heard of a guy named Blaise Pascal? Oh, we actually have a couple. All right. Well, Blaise Pascal was a French mathematician, scientist, philosopher, and a theologian who lived in the mid-1600s. Now, he's actually credited with a number of important theories that we use today involving fluids, vacuums, hydraulics. He invented the first mechanical calculator, and um, he also advanced the theories of probability. He was, in every respect, Uh, what you might call a true renaissance man. He did everything. But given all of his contributions to human advancement, it's Blaise's faith in God that I find the most intriguing and the most impactful because it informed everything that he did. You see, for the majority of his life, Blaise actually resisted God. But at the age of 31, that resistance gave out and he came face to face with the reality of the glory of God And this is what he had to say about it. Fire, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of philosophers and scholars. Certitude, heartfelt joy, peace, God of Jesus Christ, God of Jesus Christ, my God and your God. Joy, 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 tears of joy. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, may I never be separated from him. Now it's said that Pascal actually had those words sewn into the lining of his jacket so that everywhere he went, he had that testimony of his experience on that night. He was never without it. He had found satisfaction for his soul in Christ, a joy that none of his other accomplishments had been able to grant him to that point. And then in his later writings, Pascal noted that the pursuit of happiness actually drives our decisions as human beings. He said, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even those who hang themselves. I believe that Pascal got it right. More than that, I believe that Pascal experienced this reality for himself, which led him to write those words and to have them with him everywhere he went. The only way that our hearts can find true happiness and joy is to find it in God himself. When we find it, it will influence every action we take, every decision we make. We are meant to find satisfaction and gladness in God. We were created for this pursuit, to know him and to enjoy him forever. God delights in satisfying the hearts of men and women with his excellence. That is why he sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to rescue his people from enslavement to sin and suffering to the curse of death. In Christ is fullness of joy. This is the fortune 
the inheritance of all who trust in him. Now, we are about halfway through our series of the Songs of Ascents. When we finish going through these, series, these 15 songs, we're actually going to be transitioning over to the book of Joshua to finish up the study that we started last fall. As we began this series, uh, I wanted to give you a certain roadmap, a perspective for how to approach these psalms. And the most clear, um, the most clear lens of the New Testament that teaches us how to read these psalms comes from a Hebrews 11, which explains how the saints of old who died in faith look, were looking for a better country. And in verse 16, the author of Hebrews explains, But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And then he goes on to explain how that desire, that hope for a heavenly home has been accomplished through the work of Christ. God has provided something better for his people than an earthly city or an earthly kingdom. He has provided us with an inheritance of joy and gladness in his presence forevermore. He has made us his children citizens of his kingdom to dwell with him forever now the reason i bring all that up that might seem like a lot of out there musings the reason i bring that up to you is that i believe that the focus of psalm 126 and psalm 127 is on the riches that god has set aside for his people in himself my goal this morning is to bring some of those riches to your attention this morning these psalms actually teach us to savor and to enjoy the inheritance that God has secured for his people through the work of Jesus Christ. They instruct us in our pursuit of gladness in God. So, let's begin by reading uh, these two psalms together. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. And I will lead us here. This is the word of the Lord. A song of ascents. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion... We were like those who dream. Our, our mouths were filled with laughter, and our tongue was sh- with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. A song of ascents of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. As we look at these two songs, the common theme, the thread that runs through each of them is God's faithfulness to provide for his people in a most generous fashion. 
These psalms accomplish two things for us. First, they exalt God and His providence and call us to exalt in Him as well. And second, they instruct us to pursue joy and satisfaction in God as we depend on Him to meet our needs. So the theme of these psalms and our main idea today is how we find fortune in the house of the Lord. Now the goal of this is that you would lay claim and, and, and take and understand what God has reserved for you if you are in Christ. These are, this is your inheritance. So this morning, what I want to do from these psalms is to look at three ways God meets our needs and richly blesses us. So we want to look at three ways that he has provided. First, we're going to see how he has provided fortune for the destitute. Fortune for the destitute. Second, we're going to look at how God has provided fortune for the worker. Fortune for the worker. And third, we're going to see how God has provided fortune for the family. How he has provided fortune for the family. I want to begin by looking at the fortune that God has provided for those who are destitute, who are emptied. Psalm 126 has been labeled, it's been called a song of lament. But I'm not really sure that that really describes the complexity of emotion that flows out of this psalm. Now, this is a psalm of appeal to God to intervene, to restore His people just as He has done in the past. It breaks down into, very, into, into two very clear uh, parts. In the first part, verses 1 through 3, there's a massive celebration of how God has restored His people in the past, saying that this is an action that He has done for His people. It's not a new thing. In the second part, verses 4 through 6, there's a cry to God to do that work of restoration again. So this psalm is focused really on God's work of providence and specifically how he cares for those who have been emptied, for those who are destitute. What we find here is that God meets the needs of those who call on him, filling them with astonishing joy. In our emptiness, God provides us with a treasury a treasury of joy. Now when you're in need, it can be a real struggle to trust God to provide. Times of trouble test our faith. We may wonder, has God forgotten me? Are His promises really true? Have I wasted my life here? We may find in times of need our hearts are growing anxious, questioning whether or not God is going to provide for us this time. We may even find a sense of bitterness creeping into our thoughts about God. Because why on earth would a good God put me in a situation like this? Now it's uncomfortable to go through times like that. But God has a purpose for them. Like a master jeweler uses a crucible to purify gold, so God uses times of trouble and need to refine our faith. To free us from our the attachments we have to lesser saviors and to help us hope fully and totally in Him. It's in those moments when the things that we have grown used to depending on fall away from us and we really do learn how to trust in God to be our rock and our portion and our deliverer. Our eyes are open to see the one who provides for every need we have. We do not know the details of the future, but we do know our God and how he has kept his promises to his people. His faithfulness in the past is like rocket fuel that propels our faith in him to provide for our needs in the future. And that is the lesson of Psalm 126. 
So let's begin at what's looking at what the psalmist has to say. You see, first of all, he begins with what God has done in the past. And this is an awesome thing to read about. First up, we see how the psalmist recalls God's former work of restoration, filling his people with unfathomable gladness. He says, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Have you ever had something happen to you that just seemed too amazing to be true? Like it was something you had always wanted. And when it actually came into came to fruition, you thought to yourself, there's no way. This is too good. Maybe you even pinched the skin on your arm to make sure you weren't dreaming. How can this be real? Well, that's the sort of sense that we get from the psalmist, the way he talks about how God had restored the fortunes of Zion in the past. As he describes the result of God's work here, the only thing, the word that comes to my mind, the only one that I can think to describe this with is ecstasy. This is just plain and simple amazement, like a dream come true. He says our mouths were filled with laughter and we could not help ourselves but shout with joy. This is, this is the kind of joy you want, right? This is not just going to an event on a Saturday night and having a good time. This is something that fills your, the, the cup of your soul. This is joy on another level. The, the Lord's restoration of Zion didn't just bring a sense of relief to his people. It brought them tremendous pleasure. The joy was bubbling out of them like water from a spring. They were filled with happiness. Now, some people seem to resent God because they think of him as the enemy of joy. God is not the enemy of joy. He is the sole source of it. In this act of restoration, he is making people glad. He's filling their mouths with laughter. God is awesome. When we read about people experiencing even a fraction of the glory that emanates with, from him, we see that they were overcome with his beauty and his splendor. When Moses spent time on the mountain with God, we're told that when he came off, that his face glowed, that it emanated light, and so much that it scared the Israelites. They made him put a veil over his face. And while it is right to fear God, to respect him, to honor him, to regard him rightly, Doing that includes partaking of the joy and the pleasure that he delights in giving to us. In his presence is fullness of joy, David says in Psalm 16. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. God is not the enemy of your joy. He means to be the sole source of it. He restores his people. He fills them with gladness for his own name's sake. Look at the second part of verse 2. As the joy of the people spills out onto the nations around them. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. You see how gladness is the result of God's work in His people. Gladness that is not just held within their boundaries, but actually spilling out on the peoples around them as they see the work of God on the behalf of His people. God does not intend for us to be a glum people. He intends for us to be filled with joy in such a way that the world around us sees and cannot deny the power of his love. 
How the joy of God's people is meant to emanate from them, calling people from every nation, tribe, and tongue to come themselves and to be satisfied in Him. Let your light shine before others, Jesus says in Matthew 5, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That is the pursuit of God's people, a glad pursuit. Now the reason that Psalm 126 has been labeled a lament is because we see that this psalm is actually an appeal to God to repeat that work of restoration. It's written from the heart of a person who has been emptied, who finds himself destitute. Restore our fortunes, O Lord. Restore them like the streams in the Negev. Now the Negev, if you're not familiar, is a desert in the southern portion of Judah. It is arid, it's desolate, it's dry, it's not a nice place. Now that's the apparent condition. When the psalmist is looking for a way to describe his current position, that's what comes to his mind. They are empty, desolate, hungry, thirsty for God to restore them. The laughter that was previously in their mouths is but a memory now. A memory for which the psalmist is appealing to God to make a reality for them once again. This is an appeal of faith to God to fill his people with the joy that they had to make this desert wasteland into a new Eden. Imagine watching the Mojave Desert turn into a lush garden. Imagine the Saharan dunes turn into the Amazon rainforest, a place teeming with life. Seeing something like that would be, seem like a dream, like a fantasy. But the Lord is the keeper of his people. And though he appoints times of suffering and desolation, he does not forget his people. He will not abandon them. He never has. The reason the psalmist begins by remembering how God has acted in the past to restore his people is because we see that he's looking for God to do that again. And in faith, he goes on to say this astounding, these astounding words in verses 5 and 6. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. God sees the tears of his people. No father enjoys seeing his children in pain. And though God appoints for us to go through times of suffering, it is only so that he may bless us with the rich harvest of his benevolent mercy. Where there is need, he gives. He replaces the tears of our sorrow with shouts of joy. Now, these are strong words, aren't they? Uttered from a heart that is trusting in a stronger God. He is the God who restores the desolate, who hears those who cry to him. More than that, he is the God who removes the source of our suffering, who removes our very iniquity. In Ezekiel 36, he declares, Thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited, and the waste places shall be rebuilt, and the land that was desolate shall be tilled, instead of being the desolation that it was in the sight of all who passed by. And they will say, This land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden, and the waste and desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places 
and replanted what was desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. The promise of joy, the promise of gladness is a promise which God intends to fulfill and which he has fulfilled in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. In Jesus, God has removed the sin and the iniquity of his people from them. So Jesus pronounces this blessing in Matthew 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all sorts of evil falsely against you for my, on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. The fortune that God has reserved for his people, even when we suffer or are destitute, is the fortune of joy. The sort of joy that Blaise Pascal found on that stormy night. The sort of joy that the psalmist looked for here as he appealed to God to restore the fortunes of his people as he had previously. The sort of joy that Jesus had even as he emptied himself suffering on the cross. We have indeed received God's riches at Christ's expense. And so it stands for God's people. The promise is that our joy will be made full in his kingdom. It's a treasure that is as sure as Jesus' own resurrection. The thing I love about this particular song is how it encourages us to think of the many ways that God has provided for us and filled us with joy in the past so that we do not lose heart that he will meet our needs in the future. When fear and anxiety press in on me, I can find my imagination go to all sorts of places. I can imagine a thousand impossible scenarios, things that could, I could never recover from. And that throws the door open to doubt and to fear. The lesson of this psalm is that when we find ourselves in times of need, when we find ourselves in seemingly overwhelming circumstances, when we fear that our faith is going to fail, then it's in those moments that we go back and consider what God has done in the past. And when we do, we will find that He has an impeccable track record for preserving the joy of His people. We can come up with all sorts of scenarios where we can imagine God might drop the ball. But in 30 years of life, God has never let me down. Why would he do so tomorrow? The faithfulness of the Lord is displayed in this psalm to remind you and to remind me that he is worthy of our trust because he has appointed for us to be a people of great joy for the glory of his name. What a beautiful inheritance. And we see, secondly, in Psalm 127, that God has provided fortune for the worker. God has provided fortune for the worker. Now, being dedicated 
to being a hard worker is a good thing. It is one of the many things I have come to appreciate about all of you people from Wisconsin. <clears throat> being able to set your mind on something, to bring it about, to accomplish it, it's a good thing. Be a hard worker. But human pride has a way of twisting hard work and self-reliance into a wicked spirit of boastfulness that is not in touch with reality. Hard work is no guarantee for success, is it? There are a lot of Olympic athletes who are experiencing the excruciating reality of that because that just because you have a dream and just because you dedicate everything you are and everything you have to pursuing that dream, even if you have an entire nation rooting for you, that doesn't mean you are necessarily going to achieve it. I've been following an Olympic archer by the name of Brady Ellison. Brady Ellison is the only person who has ever scored two perfect uh, in competition has has scored a perfect score in the Vegas shoot with a recurve. Okay, no one has ever been able to do that. He has the skill and the ability to be a gold medalist. He is, in the opinion of many people, the best archer in the world. And even though he has the skill, even though he has the track record, the sponsorships, the the um, the equipment, he came up short this year. Even though he qualified even to compete in three different areas, he did not get his gold medal. Now he's struck uh, by a remark he made to the media leading up to the individual competition. So he had two team competitions he was involved in, and he had a, a third competition that was just him. It's Brady versus the world. And he said something that basically, I tried to find the exact quote and I couldn't find it. He said, this really comes to me as a relief because it's all about me now. Uh, that might sound arrogant, but it's the truth. Now, Brady had all the self-confidence you could ask for. He had put in all the work, and yet he got knocked out. He came up short. It only goes to prove what Solomon demonstrates here in Psalm 127, that at the end of the day, all our effort, all our skill, all of our sacrifice is in vain if God does not grant the success. Success is a blessing from God, something he gives to us out of his kindness and mercy and love. Psalm 127 feels like a mini Ecclesiastes, and that's for good reason because this is attributed to Solomon. It exposes the, the, the futility of human effort. Hard work is a good thing, but success is ultimately something that comes from God. Now look with me at verse 1. Solomon says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Now, so far this morning, we have seen how God's providence gives us faith that he will provide for our needs. Here we see that God's providence gives us both the confidence to work and the comfort to rest. After reading this psalm, you might be thinking to yourself, now what is the point of working at all? That's really missing the point, isn't it? Solomon is not calling into question whether or not we should work. He's not saying we shouldn't be hard workers. But rather, he's calling us to, to give credit to where it's due. 
in creation, God gave Adam and Eve work. He told them to keep and to expand the garden. So even as Solomon is exposing the futility of human effort, he's not saying that we shouldn't work. Rather, he's showing us that hard work ought to be done in faith, because of faith, trusting in the divine plan and the providence of God to make our efforts bear fruit. We must never forget that the success of our efforts comes as a result of God's rich blessing. Proverbs 16 verse 9 says, The heart of a man plans his way but the Lord establishes his steps. Likewise, James says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we'll go into such a place and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Faith in the providence of God actually motivates hard work and it restrains us from boasting in our own efforts. Such boasting, according to James, is evil. God's providence isn't something that we leave in the break room when we go into work. Our success in the classroom, on the factory floor, in our homes, in the field, it's all a blessing that comes from God. Unless the Lord builds the house, the labor of the builder is in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the soldiers who man the walls watch in vain. God's gift, the fortune he gives to the laborer, is to establish his steps and to bless him with success. Whatever achievements we manage to reach, the glory and the praise are always God's. Learning to rely on God's providence in our work is essential not just because it keeps us from wrongfully boasting in ourselves, but also because it brings us rest. In verse 2, Solomon makes us consider the way we structure our own workdays. He says, It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. Once again, we shouldn't think that Solomon is saying we shouldn't work hard. Rather, what he's describing here is the kind of person who's relying on their own strength to achieve success. They're burning the candle on both ends because they think it's up to them. They think that if we just follow the formula of hard work, I'll get what I want. God confounds that sort of wisdom. The reason this sort of person has sleepless nights and eats the bread of anxious toil is because they are not relying on the one who grants that to them in the first place. They labor like slaves to fear and to greed. Meanwhile, Solomon says that God gives his beloved sleep. Why? Why are the beloved able to sleep? Because they rest in the work of God to preserve them and to provide for them. Christian, you have not been called to labor, to work the way that the world labors. You know personally the God who loves you. Your work is cannot succeed apart from him. He knows your burdens and your cares. He cares for you. He loves you. He knows you intimately. He has numbered the very hairs of your head, and not one of them can fall to the ground apart from his say-so. So find your rest in him. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. 
Are you not of more value than they? He goes on to say, The Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. God loves you. He knows what you need. He gives you what you need when you need it. He is good, and he has regard for the needs of his people. He provides for our daily needs, our daily bread. And just, just as he's provided for our greatest need, our need for righteousness and salvation, he frees his people as an act of mercy and love from anxiety and fear so that we can pursue his kingdom and his righteousness first and have our joy be made full in him. So, work hard. Get that degree. Learn new skills and disciplines. Do everything with excellence to the glory of God. But remember to give credit where it is due. And remember to rest in the Lord who provides for you. Now the third fortune that we want to look at this morning is the fortune God gives to the family. In verse 3, Solomon turns his attention from the way that God provides for us in the workplace to the way that he provides for us in the home. He has a lot to say here about parents and their children, but his focus is mostly on how God blesses us through children. So, I see three blessings here that I want to bring to your attention, whether you're a parent or whether you're not. First, God gives children to be an enduring legacy. Gives them to be an enduring legacy. Here in verse 4, Solomon says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. You can spend a lot of money on a gravestone. What good is that if no one remembers you? Life is a sacred gift from God. There are few things, I think, that expose the curse of sin and the wickedness of man than contempt for God's sacred gift of life, especially of children. Children are not an inconvenience. They are divine blessing. They are a reward, Solomon says, a heritage from God. Now, I will not deny that kids are hard work. I won't. They demand a lot of effort. They demand a lot of self-sacrifice. But that effort, that inconvenience is worth it because of what they inherently are. They are an inheritance from the Lord. And as such, they ought to be valued. Not everyone is called to be a parent. But it's good for us all to be reminded of the blessing that kids are. Whether you're a parent or not, God has given everyone in this room an opportunity to be blessed and to be a blessing by caring for the kids in our church. You have a chance to impress the love of Christ on them each and every Sunday. And kids teach us in a higher degree what it means to die to ourselves and to live to Christ. It's good to embrace that sacrifice. I can't say that Ellie and I in love being woken up at 3 in the morning, every morning, or having less free time, or having more expenses. But the privilege of parenting is worth giving those temporary things up for. We get to experience in a small way in those moments the regard and the love that God has for us as his children. They truly are a heritage from the Lord. They give us insight into the mind of God. Now, the second way that we see the children are called a blessing in this way is that we see that God uses them to impact the world. 
God has appointed them to be a means for impacting the world. This is a call for missional parenting. In verse 4, Solomon says, Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. Man, this, this language just speaks to me. Archery season is, is about a month away, uh, and I put a lot of time into building my hunting arrows. I fletch them, I tune them, I sharpen the, the broadheads to make sure they, they're shaving sharp. I practice with them so that when the moment of truth comes, they fly straight and true. I don't build those arrows to put them on a shelf. I build them with purpose. I build them to be effective tools. Now Solomon uses the imagery of arrows in the, sands of a, the hands of a skilled warrior because parenting isn't ultimately about the parent. Children are a gift from God. Parents are a steward of that gift. We're called to love our children, to train them, to sharpen them, to teach them, to disciple them, and then to send them out, shot like an arrow from a bow, to live with purpose and meaning. I think about this imagery of an arrow. When you shoot an arrow, you don't always get that arrow back. Right? You send it on a mission, it accomplishes it, Sometimes the woods claim it. Our children are not fundamentally ours. And God may call your children to do something that even could claim their life. But if it's done for the kingdom, it's done well. Holding your children lightly like that strives against everything that we want to believe. Because they're ours, right? Flesh and blood. But they're not. God's. So parenting is a hard, high calling. It's tedious. It's hard work. It's monotonous. But it's worth it. Solomon says that the man who fills his quiver with arrows, aka the man who fills his home with children who are ready to fly against the forces of darkness, is a blessed man. As I look at this psalm, and then at my two children, I'm reminded that while I am so blessed to have them in my life, they aren't ultimately mine. They are the Lord's. So my job is to do my part as a father and to care for my wife as their mother, to point them to the love of Christ, trusting that He loves them far more than I ever could, and that He has glorious purpose for them. Now the third blessing that God gives the family comes to us in verse 5. Children bring honor to their parents. In verse, the second part of verse 5, Solomon continues talking about the blessing of the man who commits to this lifestyle. He says, He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. And the imagery here is of a father whose children have grown up. At this point in time, the, the city gates were where people came to have their cases, their, their cases of justice, heard before a judge and when I go into the woods to hunt I don't always go there uh, or I don't always know whether or not I'm going to get the chance to shoot my arrows but I have the utmost confidence that if that time comes my arrows are going to fly straight and I'm not going to be disappointed a warrior who has filled his quiver full of arrows can go into the fray of battle with confidence and so Solomon indicates that this man, this man who has invested his life in his family is not easily going to be shaken when he goes to speak with his enemies at the judgment seat 
because his children will honor him. As I think about what Solomon has to say here about the family and about God's blessing in that effort, I'm struck to think about his own son faltered because he drifted himself from, into disobedience against God. His son was responsible for the split of Israel that turned the nation from being one unified people into being the nation of Judah to the south and the nation of Israel to the north. The man who wrote this is responsible for that. So I'm reminded that even as Solomon himself declares here in verse 1, that unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. You know, each Sunday morning we pray as a church for the children God has given us because we just cannot afford to take the salvation of our kids for granted. You can be the very best parent in the world. You can win. I don't know who gives out that trophy, but you can win the trophy and still lose because only God can raise dead hearts. The thing that I want most of all in the world for our sons and for our daughters is to see them come to a knowledge of the truth to see them trusting in Christ for their salvation, to see them consumed by a passion for them, for Him, and to be filled with joy in obedience to Christ. That won't happen unless God builds the house. So brothers and sisters, pray. Pray. If you have kids or if you don't, pray. Pray earnestly for their salvation. Pray because we serve a good God who is able to restore the broken and to raise the dead. Pray that the next generation, as much as we like to throw them under the bus, will be more faithful than the last. Pray that the next generation will live in a restored state with Christ. Pray that Christ will be exalted in their lives. Pray that God would give us wisdom and strength and faith to parent the way we ought to. And pray that He will keep His very great promises. There is great riches to be had in the house of the Lord. And we have touched on three ways that God has blessed his people this morning. Three ways. It feels like we barely touched the iceberg. Now, as we've looked at these two psalms, we've seen that these are blessings that we cannot earn. They are blessings we receive as a matter of grace. And so, as we seek to live as a people of faith, may God give us hearts that are keen to trust him. Praise God for his providence and his goodness and his grace. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are truly good. We thank you that your promises endure. We thank you that they are trustworthy. And we ask, Father, that you would, by your Spirit, equip us to trust them. Father, if there be anyone in here this morning who has not yet submitted to Christ as their Savior, who has not repented of their sins, I pray that you would convict them Do not let them go, but save them for the sake of your name and fill them with these blessings. Fill them with the joy of Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.